Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. This week, we celebrate an incredible accomplishment by NASA. In 1969, humans blasted off from Earth and proceeded to land on the moon. We'll take a quick look at this historic event. Plus, we'll take to the seas in this issue. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez tackles hurricane intensity forecasting. Intensity forecasts and forecast models haven't been able to accurately predict how strong and how quickly hurricanes can grow. Can a new tool be the answer that the Hurricane Center needs to improve their forecasts? And have you ever wondered if Florida was vulnerable to tsunamis? What is our danger level? Meteorologist Brent Cameron has that story. That's coming up on Weather or Not after the break. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. 52 years ago this week, a most remarkable event took place. Human beings landed on the moon. As a young child, I was awed and amazed at such a feat. Knowing that anything was possible led me to the love of Earth sciences and eventually weather. Here's a brief look at this incredible accomplishment. This week, on July 16, 1969, a Saturn V rocket, the largest ever designed, blasted off from Launch Pad 39 at the Kennedy Space Center on the east coast of Central Florida. On board were three Apollo astronauts on their way to the moon. T-minus 10, 9, 8, we have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, it took three days for Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins to reach our nearest celestial neighbor. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. That was Commander Neil Armstrong, the first person to walk on the moon. Eagle was the name of the landing craft. It touched down in the Sea of Tranquility. It was indeed a historic accomplishment, not just for the U.S., but for all the people of the world. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Once upon the lunar surface, the outing was a brief two and a half hours. Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would make the moonwalk while Michael Collins waited on board the command module for their return. The mission recovered nearly 50 pounds of rocks and returned safely to Earth. Some of the early discoveries were basic by today's standards, but were extremely revealing at the time. Like what was the consistency of the lunar soil? Up to that moment, we knew so little about the moon's surface. Was it solid or powdery? Turned out to be a sticky, powdery soil. We finally got an idea of the moon's age, roughly 
4.4 billion years old. This information provided scientists with a better understanding of the age of the solar system, how the Earth came together, and how planets interacted with each other. Left behind were a number of experiments and equipment still in use today. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin erected a set of mirrors that reflects back to the Earth a beam of light. This helps scientists determine the exact distance between us and the Moon at any given time. Other gear still on the lunar surface helps measure the solar wind and keeps track of moonquakes. The most important cargo from the Apollo 11 mission was the moon rocks. Their study led scientists to theorize that the moon was born probably from a crash between a young Earth and another planet. The remnants of that explosion gave birth to our moon. But the samples brought back may not be done revealing secrets. Over 60 years later, Apollo 11 is still relevant. In 2019, NASA announced that rocks stashed away since they arrived on Earth were to be opened for further study. The thinking back in 1969 was to wait until science and technology would advance in order to get more detailed information now. We can only wait and see what the next round of discoveries will look like. The National Hurricane Center does a pretty good job at showing you the area where a storm could make landfall. But how strong it may be, that's still pretty challenging. A weather or not exclusive, sail drones deploying five uncrewed system vehicles, three from the Virgin Islands and two right here close to home. Jacksonville, a couple days away on July 23rd. Now a new tool could help in making those intensity forecasts more accurate. Here's meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez. Scientists are hard at work to keep us safe as another busy hurricane season's underway. And their newest tool, the world's first ocean drone, storm chasers that intercept hurricanes barreling towards Florida. And this summer, sail drone in partnership with NOAA, adding new to their arsenal of tools, deploying five uncrewed system vehicles to sail deep into the eye of the storm on an effort to gather life-saving information. And to learn more about this, we now have the opportunity to bring in Andy Zigwe, Vice President of Ocean Data at Sail Drone Inc. Thank you so much for joining our Weather or Not podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this is exciting news that a new high-tech tool is going to be providing such valuable information. Can you tell us what is a sail drone? A sail drone is a wind and solar powered autonomous ocean vehicle designed to collect ocean data on long duration missions in the open ocean. And how do they work? Sail drones are designed similar to any sailboat. They have a hull, a keel, and a rigid wing sail. They sail autonomously according to set waypoints and are supervised by our mission control at sail drone. Okay, and just would you be able to give me an idea of how big are these drones? Certainly, there are three classes of cell drones. Uh, the 23 foot cell drone explorer uh, is primarily used for oceanography and fisheries research. These are the, the versions that will be launched uh, for this year's hurricane season. Uh, 
we had just released or announced um, the 72-foot sail drone surveyor, which is optimized for deep water ocean mapping missions. And it'll be uh, launching next week uh, for its uh, maiden voyage uh, to Hawaii. And later this summer, we'll be introducing the 30-foot Voyager, uh, which is optimized for maritime domain awareness and uh, coastal ocean mapping missions. So as they depart from the U.S. Virgin Islands very soon this summer, what data will be collected from the sail drones? During the 2021 hurricane mission, the sail drones will collect wind speed and direction, air, sea, and surface skin temperature, relative humidity, radiation, ocean current speed and direction, barometric pressure, and fluorescence. The goal is to understand the fine scale exchanges of heat between the seawater and the atmosphere, which can lead to the rapidly increasing strength of the storm. Now, can anyone access this data? Yes, uh, the data will be provided to NOAA, so it will, it will ultimately be in the public domain. Okay. Um, and it will be combined with data from uh, other ocean-going assets, gliders, and aircraft. And where is this data going into? So all of the data that is collected, uh, the high resolution data collected um, is downsampled minutely or hourly and is sent in near real time and is available to the mission collaborators. The high resolution data is, is available when the vehicles return to port. Okay, so we know that intensity forecasting is one of the most difficult sciences. And in recent years, understanding the process behind rapid intensification has been really challenging in putting forecasts together. So how is this data going to help the National Hurricane Center help us? So we're, we're placing these with the, the help of uh, NOAA, AOML, and PMEL. Uh, we're placing them as statistically high regions of hurricane tracks uh, and coordinating with other observing assets will combine the best available forecast tracks of the hurricanes uh, and put these vehicles on an intercept course uh, to see um, how, how they do and, and uh, what nature deals us. Um, okay, so collecting real-time in situ data about heat transfer between the ocean and atmosphere will help the National Weather Service to improve hurricane forecasting. Having a better understanding of which storms are likely to become severe hurricanes before or as they hit coastal communities will give communities more time to prepare and people more time to evacuate before the storm hits, saving lives and mitigating economic impact. Now, going into the eye of a hurricane is an extremely dangerous and challenging task and one that really hasn't been done before. What does this mission expect to create? You're right. Uh, no one has sailed an autonomous vehicle or a manned vehicle for that matter into a hurricane before. Uh, this is an incredibly complex engineering challenge. Uh, so while first and foremost, this mission is, is about the science, it is also a test of the vehicle's design and ability. Uh, sail drones have successfully deployed in the roughest marine environments on the planet, from the Arctic Sea and the Gulf Stream to the first autonomous circumnavigation of Antarctica but no one has intentionally sailed into the eye of a hurricane. This mission will give us new insights into ocean conditions inside of a hurricane and will serve as a roadmap for future deployments in the Pacific and around the world to monitor extreme weather events. 
I'm really excited for the future of uh, hurricane forecasting because more tools are being implemented this year. So aside from the sail drones, we also have gliders and and other drones that are going to be flying, I believe, in at the lower level. So I'm super psyched about all of this. Yeah, <laughs> me, me too. And, and I should point out that that there's five total cell drones that will be launched. Uh, three of them will be launching from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, two of them will be launching from Florida. So we should keep you uh, informed as to where that launch date and location uh, will be. That would be amazing. We would love to cover that. All right. Okay, so you heard it from Andy. Expanding the fleet of sail drones will help map out a better picture. And we know that the exchange of heat between the ocean and the atmosphere is one of the key processes in fueling these tropical engines, because that's how we like to call them. And thanks to sail drones, we'll have more information to improve hurricane intensity forecasts and models so that will better understand how strong and how quickly these hurricanes can grow. So that will definitely help local officials down the road make decisions about evacuations a lot sooner and ultimately saving lives and property, which is the goal. So thank you so much for this information, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad glad to uh, talk with you today. For the Weather or Not podcast... I'm meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez. Thanks, Vivian. Whether or not, we'll be right back. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the storm station. Seven News. South Florida is surrounded by water. Tremors happen everywhere around the world and some can trigger tsunamis. How vulnerable is South Florida? And there was uh, tsunami alerts posted for Florida and uh, parts of the Southeast. So it it does happen, Uh, it's really rare. Meteorologist Brent Cameron shakes down the info. All right, everybody, today we take a deep dive into a fascinating topic, the kind they even make movies about, tsunamis. And to talk uh, about this, going right to the source, Uh, Our guest joins us from the National Tsunami Warning Center in, wait for it, Palmer, Alaska. Joining me is meteorologist Dave Snyder, the Tsunami Warning Coordinator at NOAA. So welcome, Dave. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Appreciate it. First of all, I'm in Miami, and I see that it's almost (laughs) 5,000 miles away. Miami is the, the base, of course, for the National Hurricane Center, and I'm guessing Uh, Just as it is here, ground zero for tropical weather, I'm guessing that the National Tsunami Warning Center in Alaska is there for a good reason. Absolutely. Uh, We are are a lot closer to a more active part of the earthquake world, uh, being, you know, the Pacific Rim and uh, very close to uh, one of the world's most active subduction zones here. So uh, Alaska is no stranger to earthquakes, and uh, we've already had a few this morning. Oh, this morning already? So this yeah. is a day-to-day kind of thing, sure. Oh, it's a constant thing uh, and really worldwide thing. So it's it's not just, uh, you know, is there a big earthquake somewhere? There are many, many small earthquakes all the time, 24 hours a day. So this is a 24-hour watch. And at what point would you consider it a large tsunami? 
So, I mean, I noticed most of all, they, they kind of run the gamut in size. I've been looking up uh, some of the information on it, and I see that maybe on average, just a few feet high, is that correct? Right, so uh, we start our warning level at, at one meter, so about three feet or so. Uh, that's about the point where we would expect to see uh, significant damage in, in boats, harbors, and along coastlines there. Uh, significant inundation would occur across a widespread coastline at that level. Um, you know, those those types of events are really rare. You have to look back quite a ways to find something like that anywhere in the world, really. Uh, more often than not, the type of information you're going to see from either of the two tsunami warning centers, the one here in Alaska, the National Tsunami Warning Center, or the one in Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, will be a tsunami information statement. And that is simply that, yes, there was a significant earthquake that occurred, and there is no danger. And uh, go back to doing what you're doing and relax. And because they're not in the news every day, and you say it's not necessarily a, um, a rare thing, but we don't often hear about it, we kind of need to look into mm -hmm. the origination of, of tsunamis. The kind of the it's a cause and effect situation, is it not? Right. Uh, you know, most most of the tsunami threat is really tied to seismic activity around the world, and and especially around subduction zones. So that's where the the earthquake plates. The tectonic plates are diving under one another. So we see that up in Alaska. We see that all the way down the Aleutian Islands out toward uh, eastern Russia and the Kamchatka Peninsula, and then down the coast of uh, China and uh, in the Philippines, uh, down toward Southeast Asia, New Zealand, of course, and then that uh, bends up through the middle of the South Pacific, uh, well off the coast of South America and Chile, and then comes right up the west coast of Western North America and certainly the lower 48. So you're looking um, at all so these areas. along that, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Along that whole boundary is where we see a lot of activity, and we're watching. You know, if we see a quake in that area, that gets our attention a lot faster than say, you know, somewhere in the middle of land, because that's not going to be a place that produces a tsunami. Uh, but where we see those significant quakes, uh, we're watching to see if that disturbs a large volume of water. And I'd say the best way to describe what happens is if you're sitting in your spa in your hot tub and you you stand up quickly or you, you raise your hand very quickly, you would disturb the top layer of water, the surface, right? And that slosh is more or less a tsunami in your hot tub. Um, you know, if, if that reaches uh, and travels across the ocean and hits a coastline, and, and you're in the way of it, that's that's a problem. And that's why we're here to let you know that something like that has occurred. So if you can kind of take me into sort of your day-to-day -day routine at the warning center, I almost picture it like a team of firemen and women waiting for the call yeah. to act on a fire, so to speak. Would that that's, be that's a really, yeah, that's a really good example. In fact, um, you know, most of the time uh, we're working on a lot of projects, uh, trying to make sure that all the systems are working and we're ready to go and waiting for that alarm to go off. Uh, our, our system analyzes thousands of quakes, too small for anyone to really feel, uh, but the computer detects them with the uh, seismometers around the world. Uh, when it gets to a thir certain threshold, it says, hey, you guys need to come look at this. And it alarms across the station. We come up, we analyze the earthquake once more in a manual fashion. And most of the time, those are not significant quakes that we have to do anything about. The next layer would be to that tsunami information statement layer where, where we're not really, it, it's not a huge concern, but it's a significant concern that somebody might have felt an earthquake close to their home. Uh, maybe they were 
maybe they notice a quake, you know, they, they felt the rumble, they might even have some damage, but it's still not big enough to produce a tsunami because of its location or because of its size. And of course, the, the worst case scenario would be an actual fire, right? At the firehouse, uh, you would uh, alarm for some type of uh, inundating wave, whether that's a lower threshold or an advisory, uh, which would be uh, under one meter or over one meter, which would be your warning. And it's good for me, it's comforting to know that someone's there on watch all times, right? 24 hours a day. We have a staff of about 18 people here at the National Tsunami Warning Center in Alaska and add in about another 12 or so at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. So uh, all in all, the, the nation and really, I'd say the, the Western Hemisphere uh, is really covered by about 30 people that do a very unique job for the United States. We sure appreciate that. And by the way, now going back to our situation in Florida now, we have just about more coastline than anyone, 1,200 miles of it, uh, most in the lower 48, I believe, and second only to Alaska, I believe. Uh, so, how is it, right. so how is it the Floridians basically don't worry about tsunami danger? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And, and the, the risk is really tied to the tectonic situation uh, around and near Florida for the Gulf of Mexico uh, and also for the Western Atlantic. There isn't a significant subduction zone in that area. So uh, the, the main mechanisms that we know that cause tsunamis are not present closer to uh, Flor Floridians' backyards. So that's good, right? Uh, but there are threats there, and there is history for tsunamis. It's just a lot more infrequent. Um, the National Tsunami Hazard Mitigation Program, which is something that helps uh, U.S. citizens understand their risks and prepare for that, uh, ranks the, the, the Florida and the U.S. Atlantic coastline as a very low to low threat for tsunamis. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really good. Um, the, the greatest risk area would be from maybe an undersea landslide, uh, places like the Great uh, Bahama Bank. Uh, could release material under the water. You wouldn't know that it happened. Uh, so the landform underneath the water would change its shape and suddenly, and that would also disturb a large volume of water. And at that point, you've, you've created a tsunami. Uh, that could reach the Florida coastline, especially the Southeast Florida coastline in about 30 to 60 minutes. So wow. it would be a really fast order uh, kind of uh, situation that would unfold. And uh, it would be, it'd also be kind of hard to detect but uh, hopefully that would give us a little bit of a seismic signal that would be detectable and we could uh, send an alert that way if uh, something like that occurred. Very interesting and I'd be mistaken not to point out, uh, I'd be amiss not to mention that uh, the University of Miami happened to do a big study on that, exactly what you're talking about with these uh, submarine landslides that uh, possibly could trigger some tsunami waves. Right, and that's that. That is really the the greatest threat for most of the Atlantic coast and the Gulf Gulf of Alaska. Uh, there's several areas that have been known to slump or have those uh, submarine landslides there. Um, but the other the other risk would be closer toward uh, the Caribbean, and you could have some earthquakes there. We know that uh, just as recently as I believe 20, 2020, early twenty twenty, uh, uh, Puerto Rico had some significant earthquake activity. And there was uh, tsunami alerts posted for Florida and uh, parts of the Southeast. So it, it does happen, uh, it's really rare. And when that does happen, uh, tsunami.gov and uh, our, our Twitter and Facebook feeds are really good places to get that information right away. And I think I remember that, uh, that time that you were talking about in 2020, mm -hmm. if that's the same event I'm thinking of, I was filling in for our chief meteorologist, 
of Phil Farrow on the on that very day, uh, and it was yeah. a pretty powerful uh, earthquake uh, that uh, that really signified uh, that started that. Um, mm -hmm. When I when I Dave when I spoke to um, your office not long ago, one of your colleagues had uh, mentioned that they had just conducted a monthly warning test for mm -hmm. I think the East Coast. What what's what's that about? Yeah, sure. So our, our our warning system here at the Tsunami Warning Center is dependent upon the forecast offices and the warning points up and down all of the U.S. coastline uh, in relaying that message and, and hitting all the, the special places that eventually reach, uh, you know, the, the TV stations and, and the weather alert systems across the U.S. from FEMA to, um, you know, web pages and, and especially the crawl on the bottom of the screen there. Um, so we test that out because unlike other systems, uh, you know, a tornado, flash flood, those, those things are considerably more frequent compared to uh, a tsunami warning. So we want to make sure that our communication systems are tight, that they work, uh, that, that all the channels that need to receive that information and act on it as quickly as possible can do that. And so once a month, we test that system out for the east and the Gulf Coast. And then we test it out for the West Coast and Alaska just to make sure that it works like we expect it to because um, we can't of, afford any failure on it. Right, exactly. And I'm sure that obviously uh, every minute, every second may be very important uh, to get right. that word out. If, you, if someone's ever under a tsunami warning, what steps do they need to take? Great question. Uh, you know, the, the really the most important thing to do is take it seriously, move away from the coast, move up in elevation, understanding that in many places in Florida, that's going to be hard to do. So moving away from the coast, moving toward uh, moving inland, uh, if you can go up in a building, that would be a good idea. Um, but the, the most important thing is get off the coast, get off the beach, stop what you're doing uh, and, and take it seriously the first time. And uh, we have one of our meteorologists here in-house, uh, Erica Delgado, who often can be found out on a boat. What should she be doing if she's out on the water? Oh, great question. And that that is a hard situation to describe because everybody on the water is going to be in a slightly different position and situation there. But let's start with uh, you're in the harbor. You haven't left the slip yet. You're still in your boat. You get a tsunami warning, get off the boat, go inland as quickly as possible, leave the boat, leave everything on the boat, just get you, the dog, and, and the kids, and, and get in as far as you can. Now, if you're already out at sea, uh, if you can get to deep water quickly and safely, I would do that. Uh, tsunamis are not impactful in deep water. Uh, so you're talking about hundreds of feet. If you can get out hundreds of feet uh, to where you've got enough water beneath you, you're not going to see a big breaking wave. But if you're close to the shore, if you're still on harbor and the wave moves in, uh, shoaling occurs. The wave builds and stacks upon itself as that energy moves in toward the coast. And you don't want to be in that spot uh, because obviously that would that would be a really damaging area to be in and you and your boat are not going to do so well in that situation. So if you have time and can get to deep water, I'd do that. Uh, but it's it's really hard to say, you know, for every mariner in every position and every fishing hole and every recreation spot, uh, you know, there's not going to be one single answer that works correctly for every single spot. So I think the most important way to summarize that would be know your risk, know your location, know what you can do in every place that you're going to be and have a plan in case that warning comes across the radio. All right. We appreciate the information. And of course, we're very grateful for what you do, Dave to keep us all uh, safe. So thank you for all uh, of that. We are talking today with meteorologist uh, Dave Snyder, the tsunami warning co coordinator 
from Palmer, Alaska, one of the centers there at NOAA. And thank you, Dave, for your time. Anytime, Brett. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. Next week on Whether or Not, the countdown is on for a big local celebration. What, you ask? It's been over 100 years in the making. Plus... The sun, the one thing that seems to be constantly shining bright in the sky. But the energy given off by the sun is not always the same. There are fluctuations from this energy as solar activity goes up and down, leading to extreme space weather. Next week on Whether or Not, I talk to Dr. Alex Young, Associate Director for Science in the Heliophysics Division at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. As we explore the sun's recent spike in activity, how it affects us on Earth, and current missions. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7Weather and, of course, live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about our podcast. We need all the listeners we can get. The next issue of Whether or Not drops July 27th. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrow.